Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic podcast. Um, I love newsletters, of course. Uh, Daily Stoic is a newsletter. If you didn't know that, uh, well, you should definitely subscribe. Daily Dad is a daily newsletter we do. There's a bunch of newsletters I like. I've gotten Maria Popova's Brain Pickings newsletter for many, many years. She just renamed it uh, The Marginalia. I like Emily Oster's Parenting Newsletter. That's a great one that I get. Um, I love Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday. That's a great one that I get. One of my researchers, Billy Oppenheimer, has a great newsletter that I love uh, that you can sign up for at uh, billyoppenheimer.com. I like Matt Levine's newsletter for Bloomberg Money Stuff. I like The Dispatch, uh, David French especially. I love Andrew Sullivan. I love Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter, uh, Letters from an American. I just love newsletters. Uh, they're great. Um, it's a great way to get information. They're not filled with ads. It's not a bunch of stuff to click. You read it in the browser. You read it on your phone. You print them out. Just a newsletter I, I love. It's been a great way for me to learn over the years. And of course, been transformative for me. My, my reading list newsletter, which I started like a decade ago, is now a bookstore. The Painted Porch Bookstore here in Bastrop, Texas would not exist if I hadn't started that newsletter where I just recommended my favorite books that I read each month which I'd love to have you sign up for uh, if, uh, if you haven't. And, and again, Daily Stoic being the newsletter that fundamentally changed my life. 
um, and is now the largest collection of Stoics anywhere in the world. So uh, one of the fastest growing newsletters uh, in recent history has been Morning Brew, uh, sort of a media business newsletter supposed to give millennials, young people, uh, like a, a rundown of everything that's happening in the world. And my guest today, Alex Lieberman, is the co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. He just sold a majority stake of it uh, to Business Insider this year for a reported $75 million. It's a huge newsletter. He was an at age 40 under 40, Forbes 30 under 30 recipient. He has a podcast for Fidelity Investments. He's talked all over the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Business Barista. And of course, sign up for Morning Brew at morningbrew.com. It also happens that Alex is a student, uh, recent student of Stoicism. I saw him tweeting about it and we connected. And we were gonna, uh, you know, you meet people and they go, hey, you wanna have a phone call? We should connect. And instead of doing a 20 minute perfunctory phone call, I thought, uh, why don't we just record an episode of the podcast and we'll just talk about Stoicism. We'll talk about life. We'll talk about newsletters. And that's what we've got here in this conversation with Alex Lieberman. I think you'll like it. And uh, I was glad to get to know Alex through it and uh, enjoy this combo. Let's start with your introduction to Stoicism, because I'm always curious about how people heard about it and, and maybe what struck them about it. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I've known about Stoicisms, Stoicism for... Um, a fair bit of time, I want to say, I don't know, four or five years. And I think I actually first came across it when Tim Ferriss had referenced, uh, you know, a Seneca quote or some quote on Twitter. And I had this perception, right? I, like we all create stories. I sure. created the story of what stoicism was without even knowing what it was. And the what story, was that story? Yeah, the story that I created was stoicism sounds like it's, uh, a derivation of being stoic. And that is the exact opposite <laughs> of what I'm trying to achieve because, you know, for context, I grew up like in a Wall Street family, uh, not super, uh, like pretty uh, unemotional. And for the longest time, I've actually wanted to do more to tap into my emotions and be an emotive person. And so I just created this very simple story in my head of like, I'm trying to be less stoic, not more stoic. Stoicism is based off of being stoic. Therefore, I'm not interested in stoicism. And so that was my story for the longest time. And then what happened was uh, I did this speaking engagement, I don't know, six months ago. And the guy who arranged it um, as a thank you for, for me speaking, he sent me a book. Um, and honestly, it was so nice. Like I, I'm... I really am not sent books when I'm sent thank you things. And it was like actually the coolest thing to just get a book in the mail thanking me for my time. And what he basically said is, um, you know, I read this as I was trying to gain more clarity in my professional journey. Um, and I really loved it. And I think you'll love it too. And so what the book was is it's this beginner's guide to stoicism tools for emotional resilience and positivity. And what's it called? It's called the beginner's guide to stoicism tools for emotional resilience and positivity by Matthew Van Nata. Okay. And it's like a little, it's like a little handbook size thing. And it, it, um, has like 150 pages. And so oh, I know this book. Yeah. He's, he's sent me this before. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 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 And so <clears throat> this was kind of like the re reminder to me, the thing that 
that um, re-upped it. And I think the reason I actually started reading this was I was feeling particularly lost. Um, I had been doing a lot of soul searching on kind of like how I want to spend my time. And this book was on my bookshelf and I picked it up one day and I read the description again, which was tools for emotional resilience and positivity. And I think I looked at that word positivity and I was like, this isn't, this isn't, this breaks my story. This isn't part of my story of what being stoic is. So maybe there's a difference between stoicism and being stoic. And so I broke open the book. I went to the dog park with my dog Rambo for two, two or three hours and I just read the whole thing. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I think that's a that's actually an interesting marketing thing you brought up, which is like so sometimes people will question like certain decisions that I make in in how I present work or videos I'll do or whatever. But yep. that like the idea that every customer or every person has a story and that this story is often limiting in some way. And that when you present something or you put something out in the world, you're not just having to represent it as it is but you're also having to anticipate potential objections that people might have and uh, present yourself in a way that you either don't threaten or you, uh, you, you don't meet those, uh, those reservations. Like for instance, my, my book, The Obstacle is the Way, deliberately says nothing about stoicism totally. uh, on the cover because I found that stoicism, people have the exact impression that you said uh, and so if you, if you, if you put stoicism, let's say in the title, uh, although I obviously did this later with the daily stoke, but at, up front, you, you are often limiting yourself. And so that's a, that's a very interesting story. Well, and what I like about even, you know, I have daily stoke in front of me right now also, and it's like, at least for me, and I would assume there are a fair number of people like me because that, uh, what I ended up doing is after reading this book, I, I have a podcast of my own and I did one episode on basically my learnings about stoicism from reading this book. And I had so many of my listeners who basically wrote back saying the same thing that they were like, oh, this is so interesting. I've heard of this, but I assumed it had to deal with being emotionless. So I never thought to dive deeper. And so, I mean, even in Daily Stoic, right? Like on the cover, you have the 366 meditations on wisdom, perseverance, and the art of living. To me, that provides more flavor that potentially um, counteracts the the narrative uh, that I and many people have. But yeah, I think it's in a lot of ways just like a branding question more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I say that in the intro of The Daily Stoic that the, the phrase Stoic philosophy is like perhaps two of the least appealing words in the English <laughs> language combined to make a super unappealing phrase. And so if you want to reach people, which obviously you want to do with a book, but you definitely want to do if you have something you believe in that you want people to, you want to reach people with, you have to find a way, if not to subvert it, then to anticipate and address. And you, you just don't want to be running into a headwind. You want to try to find a way always. Um, just like I'm sure with the morning brew, if you're like, like th there's something sort of light and nice about the name that's not like uh even though it's a serious email it's it's not uh it doesn't it's not like ugh this is something you're going to dread doing in the Oh morning. totally. And and by the way that's like why we spend so much time in the early days especially but even today on subject lines, right? Because mm -hmm. like it, it's it's like the goal with writing as well, right? It's like when you write a sentence your goal is to get someone to read the next sentence and it's like 
you know, if your goal is to get someone to to learn and benefit from the principles of stoicism, it's to get someone to be willing to actually learn what those are. And uh, like for Morning Brew, the number one thing that determined if people were going to read our whole newsletter is if the subject line was enticing enough to get them to open. And we would test our subject line. We still do it. Um, where at uh, at five in the morning Eastern time, we send four batches of emails to a group of uh, 10,000 people. And it's four different subject lines. We let those go out for an hour. And then at the end of the hour, it's 6 a.m. We see what the difference in all those subject line is in terms of open rate. And then we send the remaining called 3.4 million uh, email addresses, the winning open rate, because that literally is, was the difference of called 50 to 100,000 more people reading it a day. Right. So what do you think hit you about stoicism other than this idea that, yeah, you're very, very repressed and, and now, uh, now stoicism is going to open you up. What, what do you think, what do you think hit you about the philosophy that, that, and, and maybe why it didn't hit you earlier? Um, so here's my, here's my honest take on it, which is, you know, <clears throat> after, after we sold Morning Brew in late 2020, um, call it four months later was when I moved out of the CEO role into the executive chairman role, which is the role I'm in now. So I'm not in the the day to day of the business, and I'm spending more time creating content, working with my co-founder on like high level strategy. And I felt, I honestly I felt directionless, and I felt like I was in this circular reference of a story that I had created. And I was basically trying to figure out how do I get out of this circular reference, and kind of like the 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 what the story was was okay. We sold the company. Uh, I thought money was going to make a big difference to my happiness in life. It has not. It is not going to be a crutch anymore for like try basically for doing things to get money because money will give me happiness. You know, I've been given the freedom of time now and I don't feel any better. This sucks. <laughs> that that was kind of like my circular reference and and uh at the same time as doing that, I had all these doubts that about like what does the future hold for me? Like I don't want to be the the 28-year-old who peaked at 28. I don't want to be the one trick pony. I don't know if I could build another business again. Did I get lucky? Like that, this was the narrative I was telling myself, right? And it's so different from, I would say people on the outside, they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, those guys from Morning Brew built this amazing media business. They bootstrapped it for five years. Like they're incredibly talented. And that was totally not the story that I had. And, and so that's why I think I went on this exploration to, to stoicism because I was like, I was like, this sucks. And what I'm realizing is basically we we all have, from my perspective, two realities. We have the reality of what actually happens in the world, like objectively what occurs. And then we have our story and our perception of what occurs. And I, I'm tr and I want to figure out how I can gain clarity around my story and my perception and get myself out of this circular reference. Um, and so, you know, reading about stoicism, I think to me, actually was... Uh, you know, I'd spent time studying mindfulness as well. And to me, stoicism, I almost thought was a great bridge of 
some of the things that I've learned in call it eight years of doing therapy. So like traditional, uh, sure. Western, uh, psychological practice that I would say is very much about like labeling, naming and prescribing. And then mindfulness, which I would say can be very high level, ambiguous, um, up for interpretation. And for me, at least my, my, what I really loved about both your book and this original book I read was it, it brought specificity to, to some of these higher level concepts, right? So like the idea of basically like how focusing on controlling the things you can control and not focusing on not controlling the things you can't control, right? It's like, it's so obvious. And I think there's so much in, in both Eastern and Western that talks about this, but I just found it to be very, um, approachable when reading stoicism in a way that made sense to me. And it was practical. What did you, so I assume that, that the business was, was making uh, a good chunk of money. But yep. did, what did you think that suddenly tens of millions of dollars was going to change for you? I think part of it was that, um, I, I had money anxiety in general growing up in the sense of like, I was afraid to spend money. Um, you know, especially after when, when I was a junior in college, my dad passed away. Um, and I kind of like had made this promise to myself that I would be the person to bring in money for my family. Um, and I had anxiety around like the fact that everyone in the Lieberman household was cash outflow and there was no cash inflow. And, and so I think in my head, the story I told myself was that when I have some large windfall of money, that money anxiety will go away because I'll feel like I am able to provide for my family and provide for myself in a way that I will not have any sort of money insecurity or anxiety moving forward. So you suddenly actually get like more money than, than a person could possibly need. What, what does that feel like? What, what actually does change? I'm, I'm always fascinated. I've not gotten a good self-aware answer from a single person from just sort of regular successful entrepreneurs yeah. up to like legit billionaires. But I am curious, like, so suddenly, you know, there's nine or 10 figures in one's bank account. What, what changes? Yeah. Um, well, what I would say is not a whole lot. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's also, a, a, that really is a function of values, right? In the sense that like, I just, m I don't place a lot of value on buying very expensive things, right? Like I was actually talking to my executive coach today and he was like, what, what do you want when you grow up? And I was just like, I want to have a, a family with three kids. I want to have two homes, one in like the tri-state area, one in Colorado would be awesome. I'd love to take great vacations with my family. Um, I'd love to, and I'd love to have new experiences with my family and friends. And in doing all that, I don't want to have any anxiety about money. That That's kind of like, that's my image. And I think part of the reason nothing changed is you know, I'm still 28. I still don't have a family yet. None of these massive purchases or things have come up yet. But 
in the same sort of way. And I think it's what's making me realize a lot of this like money and security and anxiety is, is, um, irrational. I think I still have as much insecurity or anxiety about money today as I did before the transaction. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Wow. Um, which is such a fascinating thing. Have you listened to Ramit uh, Sethi's podcast? I, so I've read some of Ramit's stuff. I haven't listened to the podcast. Podcast is great. I know I'm using my podcast to rave about his, but I was just listening to an episode the other day where it was a, a two, like a couple, they work at tech companies. They've been successful. They have a net worth of $8 million and they comparison shop for blueberries, right? Like they're sort of stuck in this cycle. Um, I think we all get sort of get scripts or ideas about money or uh, what it means or what it will do for us. And then whether you have $80,000 or $8 million, you're still trapped in that thing. It's a, I think you would really like it, but I'm, I'm a big yeah. fan of that podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to it. And yeah, and I think what you said is like, I do think in general, we get trapped in stories as well, right? Like this story in my mind was that um, money equals success. The more that I have of it, the more successful that I am. Also, the more that I have of it, the less that I have any anxiety around it. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those things where even, even like rationally where, you know, you see those statistics about once someone is making a certain level of income, I can't remember. It depends where you are in the U S like 70 grand. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like 70 grand, your marginal happiness per dollar you make goes down significantly. Like you hear that and you rationalize it. But at least for me, it was very hard for me to appreciate that until I lived it. And now that I've lived it. I'm just like, no, no dollar is going to change my marginal happiness. And so I really need to look inward to, to gain a sense of clarity 
um, and, and happiness just through my perception of the world. Well, this is really interesting too, because, and I think this is why the Stoics resonate with me more than some of the Eastern philosophers, is that um, although there were certainly impoverished Stoics, uh, Epictetus being one, you know, Marcus Aurelius is very wealthy, Seneca is very wealthy, uh, Cato is very wealthy. Um, Zeno comes from wealth, loses it, and then seems to get a chunk of it back. The idea being that they were like real human beings in the real world who were probably all primed like we all are to think that more is better and that yep. you will be happy when you have more. But then they, but then unlike a lot of philosophers, they actually got more, right? So it's like very easy to go like, uh, more will be better or to say more doesn't mean anything, but like it matters if you actually <laughs> have tested the hypothesis in the real world, not just in the classroom. And you get, you get Seneca basically saying like, look, it's better to be rich than poor in the sense that it's probably better to be tall than short, beautiful than ugly, uh, or to have two arms versus one arm. Yep. Um, if you had your preference, that's what you would do. But you are also at a place where you don't need it either way. So like when the Stoics talk about indifference, we tend to think indifference means you don't like it, which is obviously the definition of what indifference does yes. not mean. For the Stoics, indifference was like good one way or the other. Totally. Yeah. I, I think, I think it totally makes sense. And, um, you know, as I was reading both books and, and, and I think about this general, generally as like, I'm kind of practicing call it like my inner work is so much of what I'm trying to do is just like unlearn the expectations, anxieties, and like regrets that the world has taught to me and not necessarily intentionally. Um, but like in so many ways, when I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, practicing whatever it may be like controlling things I can control or living in the present or, um, you know, um, separating like my reactions to kind of my final judgments. Like, I don't know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm just trying to live like a child again. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, I, I, in so many ways, when I think about what, when Alex Lieberman was in kindergarten, I would say like Alex Lieberman was his happiest self. Like I, I loved learning in my kindergarten cl classroom with Miss Golo. I uh, was super creative. I remember in kindergarten, like I, I felt like I was the smartest person on planet earth because I took a pen and a highlighter. I cut them each in half. I taped them together. And I was like, I'm a freaking genius. I just made a pen highlighter two in one. And like, I'd go on the playground. I'd play with kids. I'd laugh a ton. I wouldn't be think I, I wouldn't be thinking about like, Oh, yesterday. Um, when Sally said something mean to me in kindergarten class, I still really am dwelling on that. Or I wouldn't say to myself, Oh shit. Like, am I going to do well in kindergarten, uh, in terms of my final grade at the end of this year, like those were never thoughts. Right. And, and so obviously it's not realistic because we live in a, a society where expectations progress, like it is both measured and it's how society structured, but like, there's so many things I admire about the way I was able to live when I was in kindergarten. Well, yeah, I think I think there's a certain uh, presentness to children, an openness to children, 
an acceptance to children, even though they throw tantrums about things. They're just sort of like, they're sort of, I think, aware of how little control they have. So there's like, oh, this is where we're going. Okay. You know? Um, and, and there is a, I think what comes from that are some things you don't necessarily think about as stoic, but like sort of joy. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is a more, you know, the stoics talk about living in accordance with nature. And I think children are more in that state, the, 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 the connection to the sort of world. Whereas like we live in this, uh, place where we think we're in control. We have things we're trying to do. We have what, what the Buddhists call willful will. And I think that is the, at the root of a lot of our unhappiness. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and it's even like, I don't know, I was just thinking about how one of the things that really, uh, stuck with me in terms of like desiring and focusing on the things that are within our complete control, right? It's, it's such a obvious point. <laughs> when you say it out loud, like, oh yeah, obviously I'm only going to focus on the things I can control. But then when you actually reflect on the things that drove your emotions in the last 24 hours, how many of those things were based on what you could control? Yeah, uh, most of what you spend your time on is stuff that's not in your control. Like it's that, it's not just like, oh yeah, let's focus on what we control. That's really obvious. And then it's like, okay, but what did I spend the majority of my time energy and emotional energy on in the last 24 hours. It was the opposite of things that are in my control. Yeah. And I would say for me, like the vast majority of it is like anticipatory anxiety where it's like when I would be managing people within morning brew and I would need to say hypothetically tell them that they're not doing what's expected of them in work. It, especially in the early days when I was a first time manager, I would default to not saying the thing because I'd be so concerned about how they would react. But like that's that's kind of like not my thing to own. My thing to own is how can I deliver this in a way that is clear and empathetic and compassionate? But I can't worry about how someone is going to respond to that if it's going to impact my ability to do what I think is most important and is within my control. And like I feel like that is the story of 90% of managers. Yeah, I think that's right. Um well and and I think the the idea to me where stoicism really fits well in the idea of of management and you know the stoics were managers with back to marcus aurelius he's the manager of the largest empire in the world is like you wake up and shit goes wrong that is like the, that is the entrepreneur's life is it's never going the way you want it to go and you're forced to improvise adapt accept you know change around what's happening in the world and what's happening with your people. Cause that that's, I think the tricky part about running a company is that it is dependent on a bunch of people who you do not control, even though you're their boss, you do not control them. You don't control what they think. You don't control what they have, you know, how quickly they do there. It's this thing that you're only nominally the head of, and you have to figure out how to make it work. However imperfect it is. I have, I, I'm not sure if you know the, the answer to this, but like something I've thought about, you know, uh, how kind of the Stoics would, would think about this is like you just mentioned, like shit hits the fandom work all the time. And I think, um, actually my, my thing that happened that was very adaptive and it served me well, but I think there's trade off to it is 
I learned how to become kind of like numb to sh- shit hitting the fan and work. Meaning something would go horribly wrong and I'd always be like, oh, it's fine. We're, we're going to figure it out. Like that would be kind of my default is I would literally sure. not experience the experience because I needed to stay level-headed and fully objective. But I think there's a trade-off to not fully feeling your emotions or experiencing that emotion in a way that is productive. Do the Stokes say anything about like how to, uh, I guess, feel or experience your emotion, but do so in a productive way where it doesn't hold you back? Well, I think so two things. So one, yeah, that is obviously the job of the leader because if shit hits the fan and then the leader freaks out, like where does that leave everyone else, right? Totally. Like it, it's sort of like if the parents are handling it badly, then the kid either is in real bad shape or the kid has to then go do the adult job, which isn't fair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the there is a higher standard for the leader. And, and Seneca talks about this in his essay on anger. He's like, look, normal people in smaller positions can be angry, have feuds, get worked up about stuff, et cetera. But you, the emperor, he's writing uh, mostly to, to Nero, it seems like, you can't. You can't. It's too expensive for you, right? Like too much is dependent on. So you have to sort of be more controlled than the average person. But Seneca also talks about sort of generally with emotions, this idea that like there is the immediate reaction, uh, fantasia, uh, th- the, that you feel like if somebody jumps around a corner and scares you, um, you can feel that. It's just what do you do in reaction to it after? So right. to, again, to go to the idea of, of, of anger, like if someone says something hurtful or some employee really screws something up, like you could be upset. This thing just cost you, you know, a million dollars. But the decision to call them into your office and chew them out about it or abuse them about it, that is yep. where the line is, right? So it's like you can have the emotion. You just have to understand that as the leader, you are circumscribed in your ability to act on that emotion. And that this is probably a good thing, right? Like the idea is to process that emotion, figure it out instead of just dumping it on someone, which totally. I'm very guilty of myself. So I'm not trying to say this yeah. from some place of, of sageness. Totally. And I think, again, the way you put it makes total sense, right? Like you can kind of, you can have both, uh, but you just can't have one impact the other in a way that holds back your ability to uh, run a business or any relationship with clarity of thought. Um, I, I will say, at least from my own experience, I found it very difficult at times to create that delineation where it it gets blurred. And I think out of fear that I will act emotionally, I end up acting, I would say, more like a robot than someone who's overly emotional. Well, this is something that that I that I've benefited from in mindfulness and in meditation. The idea of like you're having like so you're sitting there and you're trying to have no thoughts, right? And so the mind's like, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought right? That's sort of witnessing that this is what your mind does. And then uh, what what they teach in mindfulness is the idea of going like, yes, you're having the thought, but you don't have to accept the thought, right? Like the idea of seeing thoughts as sort of clouds in the sky, they're there, you acknowledge them, but you don't try to grab hold of them. You just sort of let them come in and out of the frame. And like, this is something I've been dealing with, with just like how screwed up the world is right now. It's like, this, you know, it looks like the Supreme Court's going to do this and it looks like they're going to do this. And it looks like this is the, the latest on this variant or, you know, here's some awful 
trend that's sort of looming in the background that you're powerless to do anything about. I'm, I'm trying to remind myself, like, you can have that feeling. Like, that is scary. It's weird. It's disappointing. It's not what I would choose if I had a choice. And then I can just sort of sigh and then get back to what I should be doing, right? Like totally, you don't, totally. you don't have to ang- be, be ang- uh, anguished about it. You don't have to be consumed by it. You don't have to pretend it's not there, but you also don't have to give yourself over to it. Totally. Well, I mean, like even it's kind of the same exact thought on call it like the Western side with a lot of the work I do with my therapist, it's around uh, you know, I, um, I suffer from OCD. I, it's manifested in many, in different ways over call it like the last decade of my life. And there are different ways that, um, you can work through or work with OCD. Uh, one way is exposure therapy. The other way is ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's basically in my mind, acceptance and commitment therapy is kind of a prescribed or labeled version of meditating or practicing mindfulness in the sense that you acknowledge that a feeling is there, but you don't um, extrapolate it to your entire experience. You know, the the way that my therapist has always kind of like uh, explained it, similar to like the cloud analogy or like the meditation analogy of like uh, a moving river with things moving through the w- river is it's like if, if um, you have like one of those little swimmers in your eye mm-hmm. and the swimmer is like in the top left corner, it is there, it is annoying, it is inhibiting your vision a little bit, but it's not blinding you, it is not uh, blocking your entire vantage point, it's, it's just there and it's annoying and that's okay. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's 
That's code DAILYSTOIC. Order using DoorDash today for eligible users only. Terms apply. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. It's obviously easy to sort of agree in in theory. And then, of course, when uh, it's more than just a swimmer in your eye and it, it, it feels really scary or weird or upsetting, then it's sort of like, you know, getting yourself under control when you when you relapse. Totally. And by the way, like I think uh, in without getting too much into kind of like the the deep discussion about it, like I, I think we've kind of just seen that on like the world stage with all the the <clears throat> conversation around um, around the virus and the vaccines is like kind of all these different viewpoints on what is the right procedure to stay he- healthy and safe, um, where there's so much information, um, there's information overload, but there are also a lot of questions that aren't exactly answered yet, right? Even with the new variant, it hasn't exactly been answered yet. You know, how virulent is it? How easily spreadable is it? And I think when there's ambiguity, when people's health is at risk, things get very emotional. And I think it, it also, it creates a great opportunity for like the separation of, emotional and like logical discussion, it creates a great opportunity for that to happen. But kind of to your point, when this is like a very real concern that hundreds of millions of people are experiencing, sometimes it's 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 way easier said than done. Yeah. And I don't know when people will be listening to it, but it's a great example, right? So as you and I are talking, we're like three days into the acknowledgement or the the recognition of the of the uh, the new variant, which has a stupid name, uh, yep. is a great a great illustration of uh, the failures of communication of the various agencies in the world that they would pick a long ass variant name <laughs> that is not clear how to pronounce. Like, why would they just call it Omni, right, or Omni, or any like who cares about whether it normally is connected to this alphabet or that? Could be easy. Yes, I digress. Um, what I think is interesting is they're like, look, this is. It. We know that it exists. We don't know. We know that obviously it'd be better if it didn't exist, but we don't actually know the implications of it. And we won't know for approximately two weeks. So everyone's going to have to sit in a period of unknowing, right? Which is about the hardest thing you can possibly ask of people. And you've watched even in the last three or four days, people trying to, it's not that they want a shortcut, but they're just like, I know you said two weeks, but could this be the answer? Could this yep. be evident? And so instead of just like like I was saying, going like, hey, this is there and you're going to have to live your, the next two weeks of your life with this sort of looming uncertainty, people are like, well, what if I doom scroll all day? Will that make the answer come sooner? <laughs> or you know, what if I just freak out? Or what if I start blaming fingers? Or what if I go into denial about it? And it's like none of those change the fact that you have to sit uncomfortably with this thing for two weeks and and by the time people are listening to this, it could be the worst case scenario. It could be the best case scenario having revealed itself. But nothing that happened in this period cha- will have changed that it, or made totally. one or the other more or less likely. And people just really struggle. Mark Surrealist in Meditations talks about having no opinion. He says you always have the power of having no opinion. But that's a power we relinquish you know, pretty much all the time. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's uh, again, it goes back to control. There's nothing we can do to control the situation, but yeah, ambiguity is again, like I, I have personally struggled with ambiguity for my whole life and I'm just seeing people who I 
haven't seen struggle with it in the same way that I have for so long, struggle with it as a function of what's going on in the world right now. And it's like you said, it, it's, um, it is really difficult. Um, and we'll, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but also it's not within our control to, yes. dic to dictate what's going to happen. The other thing that I, to me, that connects stoicism to the pandemic the best, and it's a quote, again, easier said than done, but one of my favorite passages in meditations, Marcus Aurelius goes, look, is a world without shameless people possible? And he goes, no, of course not. He says a certain percentage of the people are going to be shameless. So when you meet a shameless person, like, why are you surprised first? But second, like, know that this is one of that percentage, right? If it's one out of a hundred, you met one. Okay. That's one out of a hundred. They, you knew they existed. And I think, and I struggled with this myself, like there was never a possibility where a hundred percent of the people were going to take the pandemic seriously, where a hundred percent of the people were going to get vaccinated, where a hundred percent of the people were going to do any of these things. And yet we are dismayed every time we meet one of those people. Now, Obviously, it, it, there's a difference between 30% of the population and 10%. And there is a certain amount of that that's in the control, if not of us, then of like sort of policy and public culture and how one handles things. And you can influence that number. But the idea that you're, this was, you were ever going to get everyone on board um, was naive and impossible. And so I do take some solace in the like, look, Certain percentage of the population is going to be selfish and stupid. Certain percentage of the population is going to be misinformed. Certain percentage of the population is going to be, you know, misled and and used against their own interests, etc. So you've just got to accept that when you meet one of those people. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I I think it's so well said. And Honestly, like what what a lot of this just has me thinking about, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently as I think about kind of like my journey and and also as just I've consumed your content is just like just th think about how much just how many more tools you have personally given all of like the study you've done in stoicism just to navigate life and everything it has yeah. to offer. And I've done <laughs> one one thousandth of your study, but I have found even tools already and. I don't know. I've just thought to myself recently, like how amazing of a world it would be when people have these new tools through inner work. And obviously it feels like things like meditation and mindfulness are so much more prevalent today than even say my parents' generation, but it still feels so incredibly early. And obviously as someone who's grown up in media for the last six years and just like the power of building a trusted audience and delivering a message that can have an impact, I I've just thought to myself, there's like, I think there's such a white space for, I don't know, like whether it's ma making stoicism go viral, making mindfulness, making inner work go viral in the sense of like making it approachable to people where it becomes a daily practice at a mass scale. And obviously I'm assuming that was one of your goals with, you know, things like daily stoic. Yeah, of course. Of course. The idea of like, how do you, how do you take these ideas that are, um, simple, but perhaps inaccessible at the beginning yep. and bring them to people. Just like, yeah, there's really nothing in Morning Brew that people couldn't find elsewhere. But the point is, the, po the, the value proposition is like, now you don't have to find it elsewhere. <laughs> like the totally. point is in the aggregation, right? Or in the collection or in the, the lens or the, the angle. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will say, say this, uh, like they'll be like, 
oh, why are you reading Ryan's stuff? You should just read the originals. And it's like, literally <laughs> nothing would make me happier. But yeah. that wasn't exactly happening <laughs> at any, uh, uh, you know, uh, significant number until I started doing this, right? Uh, or, totally. or that was very unlikely, not to take credit for it then, but that was also very unlikely that this chunk of the population that I'm speaking to would have been doing that. Now they are. And so it, it's funny how people can get sort of really snooty about stuff when when actually it is bringing about exactly the thing they claim to want to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think about content in three ways. I think about it as um, original creation, uh, curation, and, and in that bucket, I put curation and remixing, um, and then translation. And I think we put so much emphasis uh, in society on creation that like, oh, I need to be a creator. I need to put stuff out. It needs to be my own original thoughts. I need to be the first person that thought of this. Like the, you know, the newsflash is that like pretty much everything that all of us are thinking of is not an original thought. And that's, that's okay. That's not a bad thing. There have been a lot of people on planet earth that have had similar brains to ours. Um, but I think so much of the value, especially in the fire hose that the internet has afforded us today is in curation, remixing and translation. And that's basically exactly what you've described in the same way, like with thinking like a monk by Jay Shetty. Like I think it did the same thing because I tried reading some um, Buddhist texts and I couldn't get through it. And um, I think also the 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 hard thing here, the harder thing, which I'm interested in how you think about is like with Morning Brew, um, the the reason we thought it would stick is because our view is like, a 26-year-old professional wants to look good in front of their boss. And to do that, they need to know what's going on in the world, but they don't have a lot of time to do that. So like M Morning Brew is like uh, like stupidity insurance, so you don't look bad in front of your boss. And so I like every product I think about, I think about how is it uh, a painkiller or how is it a vitamin? And the issue is, is I think some of the most helpful products in the world are vitamins but people gravitate towards painkillers, things that alleviate pain today. Sure. And so I, you know, in some ways, like I think about stoicism and mindfulness and even personal finance in this bucket of vitamins. And the question is, is how do you create urgency for people to engage in vitamins when the long-term benefit is one that compounds on itself and you don't necessarily see today? Well, I, I went through this with the the trilogy that I did on stoicism, uh, Obstacles Away, Egos, the Enemy, and Stillness is the Key. It was realizing, especially with the first book, it was like, I wanted to write a book about stoic philosophy, but I knew that the vast majority of people were not interested in stoic philosophy. But most people have problems, right? Most like, obstacles are a universal fact of life. And so the idea is, oh, okay, let me present a part of stoic philosophy as a tool for dealing with yep. obstacles or a solution to your problem. So I was like, very few people, and I, I remember saying this to the publisher, very few people wake up in the morning and say, I want to know about Stoic philosophy. They do say, I have a problem and I need a solution. And so if you can meet people where they are, you can present. So vitamin is, is effectively uh, preventative, right? And I think that's people are bad at sort of- yep. Uh, prevention. But if you say, actually, this vitamin is a painkiller, right? Then, uh, then you, you, yeah, it becomes alleviation. 
Exactly. And so that, that I, it's like, I want to get you there when you're like, whether it's an athlete who just blew out their knee or it's somebody who just went through a divorce or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I want to get you there. And then you go, oh, this actually is a framework worth exploring more fully and can be applied outside the narrow context in which I was originally envisioning it. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. You seem like you spend a lot of time on Twitter. I was curious about this <laughs> sort of fire hose. I, I've ne obviously I have a Twitter account and we use one for for my account yeah. and daily so. But I just find that I'm never I never feel better after I've been on Twitter. Oh, I've spent I spent a lot of time thinking about this and like because so. I I would say I got introduced to Twitter, call it two years ago, by that's it, yeah, by my co-founder. Um, like like I knew what it was, but I didn't I I, I didn't uh, really spend time on Twitter. Um, and I I would say I sometimes feel really good on Twitter, and I sometimes feel really shitty on Twitter. And and the reason I would say the reason I feel shitty is actually not the reason that a lot of people feel shitty. I feel like a lot of people feel shitty because they doom scroll on Twitter. They see sad things happening in the world. They see really polarizing conversations and they're like, what's the world come to? For me personally, that's, that's not what makes me feel shitty. What makes me feel shitty is, is honestly that it is an addictive platform. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is addictive just like any other social media. I think one, uh, I procrastinate too much as a function of Twitter. And then I feel shitty because I've effectively not kept my promise to myself of not going on Twitter and doing the thing that I said I was going to do. And then I feel really bad because if I can't keep my word to myself, who am I going to keep my word to? And I think the second reason I end up not feeling great on it at times is because I feel that gravitational pull to look at the likes I'm getting and the retweets. And that is the exact call it like trigger for enjoyment that I don't want to be uh, per perpetuating, right? Like I was even thinking the other day, I would love to create kind of like a tool or a Chrome add-in where I could publish my tweets, but it never shows likes or retweets or comments going up. I All I can look at is the content that I've put out and that's it. And I have to just have a love for the information that I've put out. But you can do, I mean, that's how I sort of do it, which is that I write all the things that I post, but then when it goes to someone on my team, but even then it just gets scheduled, right? So yeah. like, I don't interact. It's a, it's a one-way medium, unfortunately. I wish it could be otherwise, but uh, for yeah. me, it's a one-way medium. And I think that is the healthier way. The only thing that I find that, that, um, they, that you could possibly miss out on uh, as a function of making it one way is called like the amazing conversations and connections that happen in DMs on Twitter. So yes. like just some amazing people that I've met, like I wouldn't have connected with you. Especially if, it if you have the check mark, you get, act, it's like, it's like this weird, like side door loophole to connect with people you could never, you would never be in the same room with, you'd never have their phone number. Uh, it, exactly. It's, it's weird. And so a lot of people that I now actively text with every day, just talking about interesting topics, some related to work, some related to Web 3.0 and NFTs, some not related to work at all, and just like kind of the journey that I've just discussed, those happen through originally 
DMs on Twitter. And those happen on DMs on Twitter as a function of them seeing my content on Twitter. I think that's so, how we got connected. You tweeted something about stoicism, but then somebody, exactly sent, right. somebody sent it to me because they knew I wouldn't see it. And then I DM'd you and, and here we are. Exactly. So we wouldn't have gotten connected other way, otherwise. Or if we would, maybe we would have, it just would have happened at a different time. And so yeah. that's the hard thing for me is if I, I think if I treated Twitter in the same way you treat it, there'd be so much benefit. I wouldn't feel really crappy about the validation and happiness I feel from likes and the dopamine hits. And I wouldn't feel like I'm not keeping my word to myself, but I would feel like um, I've deprived myself of a form of community building and connection. And maybe one could argue you could accomplish that elsewhere, um, but I just haven't figured out a great alternative yet. No, I I get it too. I, I find Instagram seems to be a platform that you get most of the benefits less of the the that's the, interesting at the, the aftertaste and you still get the same sort of D, dm benefit i guess but um yeah, yeah i just I, I just got i just got a big build a bigger audience on uh, instagram then i guess because i'm not getting access to to uh cool people to to dm with i i just find twitter is sort of radicalized like otherwise thoughtful people uh and so it's it's just it's like Twitter is overtly political, whereas like Instagram and the other networks yeah. have a political component, but it hasn't the 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 tail isn't wagging the dog. And so like I remember in the early days of Twitter, I was actually in Austin in 2007 at South by Southwest when Twitter uh, launched. I remember wow. I was with Tim Ferriss and uh, Tim was like, I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And, <laughs> Tim invested in it. So I guess that uh, that shows the difference between us. But I I remember uh like people used to talk about pizza on Twitter and there was jokes and it would like Twitter wasn't the sort of toxic cesspool that it's become. And I think there is a part of these networks where you sort of like you get something out of them and then the ratio twists and you gotta you gotta be able to be like, yeah, I'm getting off this. To- totally. And by the way, the the last thing that I didn't mention that I, I find to be particularly um, unhealthy about Twitter for me is, again, all of us in life do some level of social comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm constantly thinking about how can I build more internal sense of self so that kind of like that voice can be quieted a little bit. But I find that it is definitely um, activated in a re- very real way on Twitter. And I think that's a function of the crowd that hangs out on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. because Twitter is so like has such a concentration of like venture capitalists, uh, venture backed startups and other founders. Honestly, <laughs> there's there's a feeling of like lack of success that I feel where I see some of these people that I engage. It's almost like it's the the double-edged sword to amazing access is like I get incredible access to unbelievable founders and VCs. But on the other side, I'm like, shit, I've only built one business and I'm talking to these people that have built $4 billion companies. Like, what am I doing with my life? And I think that's a really unhealthy thing that um, I find as well. Yeah, no, it sounds like, I think I'm very suspicious of things that are motivated by FOMO. And yep. so like you're saying like, well, what would I miss if I wasn't on it? I'm like, okay, that's like a good thing to not do. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I think, uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think almost like another way to frame this is like, how could I find great connection and community without the trade-off of my mental health? (laughs) 
Totally, totally. Well, let me ask you then, uh, other than Morning Brew, what does, because this is another, I think, source of misery and and disorientation for people, is what does your media diet look like? As someone who sort of does this professionally, but also probably has peered behind the curtain a little bit, what does your media diet look like? I would say the vast majority of what I consume is um, bookmarks that I've bookmark, bookmarked on Twitter. It is- What, do you, what does uh, that mean? So, so as in like I have, you know, my cure, like I have the people that I follow on Twitter. When Twitter's I see like something- your newspaper. Yeah, exactly. And when I see interesting stuff that I follow, I'll bookmark it. And now you can have folders in your bookmarks. So I have one folder for entrepreneurship, one folder for mindfulness and spirituality. And I, every day when I dedicate time to consumption, I go to those folders and I go through the content. Um, and, and you know, typically like tweet threads have become a big thing, right? Like a, yeah. a string of tweets. That'll be a lot of times stuff that I'm bookmarking. So that's one. The, sec- the second would be just like, close connections, friends, contacts that I'm like texting with, uh, just sharing articles and things for me to read. So referrals. Um, and then the final one, honestly, I, I read so uh, a bunch of essays. Like I actually don't like reading <laughs> this. This sounds so ironic because it is, I don't read that much news. Yeah. Um, like I read the brew every day. I read maybe one or two other newsletters, but for the most part, I would say 95% of my media diet is ever gray or evergreen things that were written a while ago or have a longer shelf right life and a site i always go to to read essays is it's called readsomethinggreat.com oh i've never heard of this and and it's amazing it's basically it's a website that has uh manually curated essays and uh it offers you five at a time and it's always the same categories the first category is living better the second category is business and tech. The third category is history and culture. The fourth is science and nature. And the fifth is wildcard. And basically it's essays that have been vetted by the person who created this site. They, you know, they range from being a two-minute read to a two-hour read. And I just find amazing content here. And what I love about this is it helps me with discovery of great writers. And then once I find a great writer, I'll go down the the writer rabbit hole and I'll just read everything by them. And that actually leads me to another site, which is called alias.co. And al- honestly, you may even be on alias.co. Let me see. I've um, never heard of it. Oh, no, you're not on it yet. Um, basically, it's a site that allows you to go down uh, the rabbit hole of people. So you go into alias.co and it has a whole directory of people. So for example, right now I'm looking at uh, Bology, I'm looking at Paul Graham. I'm looking at um, uh, Reshma Sajani, the uh, founder of Girls Who Code. And it has every podcast, YouTube video, tweet, and essay that they have ever appeared on or written. And so it's like if you want to study the mind of a person, it is the place to to study the mind of people that have been curated. Interesting. Yeah, this is cool. So wait, so... You have to join Alias or they no, decide who is featured on Alias? They they decide who's featured. So I think I think as they're spending time on it, uh, like if if you 
go to the search bar, right? You can look up your name and you'll see it says notify me. I think they basically say once a certain person has had notify me clicked a lot of times, it's their signal to curate that person's content. And so I think right now, you know, they probably have uh, uh, 50 people on here. And I think their goal is just to expand it over time. But to me, it's like the combination of read something great reveals really interesting people who, who think in a new way that gets me to think differently. And then if these people are on Alias, I'll go down the rabbit hole of everything they've created on Alias. Right. No, this is interesting. I like, um, I, I like read something great. Uh, this is cool too. I, I do like, I do like sort of people who write long form stuff. That's kind of why I like podcasts too. Like the idea of, of a sort of medium that's not dependent on virality. It's just dependent on sort of, uh, quality. Yeah. Or, or, but also it's just like, it's in depth and the fact Exa that, exactly. yeah, it, it tends to create better stuff. And by the way, this is like one of my whole thoughts of it's such an interesting thing that like other than for commoditized content, I rarely use Google anymore. And so like the best content on the internet sits in like the nooks and crannies of the internet, usually through referral or curation. And it's just so interesting that like I have to do all these steps to find the most interesting stuff because it's never going to be the stuff that shows up on Google. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because these two sites you mentioned are like the opposite of Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Maybe maybe uh, I should just spend more time on these sites and less on I, Twitter. I think so. Uh, yeah. I think so. No, that's fascinating. What newsletters do you like? So, um, obviously, Morning Brew. Um, I like uh, James Clear's newsletter, mm -hmm. um, th three two one. Um, I like Not Boring. So Packy McCormick's newsletter, um, he just, he, he analyzes, uh, basically tech trends and, um, up and coming startups. Um, I love Ben Thompson. I just think he's like one of the smartest thinkers about technology companies. Honestly, I'm looking for more in my newsletter diet that isn't, doesn't have to do with business that either has to do with, again, like psychology, mindfulness, mental health, et cetera. So if you have any recommendations, I'm interested in those, but those are my top few. Well, I may recommend the, uh, the daily stoic email, which goes out uh, every morning. And it's one thought about stoicism. Uh, what, what do I like now? What do I like? That's not, I like, uh, do you like Maria Popova? She, she does brain oh, that brain pickings. I think you'd like that one. Okay. I like, uh, this one's more business, but Matt Levine's, uh, yeah, newsletter. He, he's great. Ah, uh, dude, he's because even though like I, it, it would seem very Wall Streety, but it, it's uh, it's actually uh, he's just he's hilarious. Yeah, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. He has a great sense of humor. I've always thought to myself, if he went off like away from Bloomberg and onto like Substack's platform, he would be the number one uh, supported writer on Substack. Yeah, probably because he could charge like five hundred dollars a year for it, it exactly. Because, yes, exactly. Um, no, his is great. I like um, I like uh, uh, Emily Oster. I mean, this is more of a parenting thing, but Emily Oster's is fantastic. It's it's I've a never parenting heard of one. Um, who else do I like? Yeah, uh, I'm I, not I'm not a parent yet, so I may have to bookmark this for when I end up be, becoming a parent. I do a parenting email each day, each, each morning too, called Daily Dad. Oh, nice. Those are like my those are the two that I write. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I think that's a good point. I wish there was more 
non-political, non-business sort of daily uh, or or weekly or whatever, just sort of thoughts about uh, life or uh, psychology or trends or business or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking there, uh, there could be a cool... I have a few newsletter ideas that um, I, I haven't started, but I think would be amazing. One being like just a positive email, mm-hmm. like literally just like, like, like three things that make you smile to start your day. Like a, a quote, a picture, a video um, that just get your day going with momentum and realize how uh, and, and allow you to practice gratitude through example. I think that's right. I like I like Tim's uh, Five Bullet Friday. I think that's yep. that's I get a lot out of that one. And then actually, uh, one of my uh, the, one of my he started as my research assistant, and now he, he does content for Daily Stoke. But he has one called Six at Six, uh, where okay. it's like six things every Sunday. Um, oh, I, I like that. just it, and I, I like that one a lot. Um, where do I because, find that? Uh, let me see. Let me see how. I don't remember. Just uh, let me get the name. Um, okay. Here, you can let me know later if you want. Just it's billyoppenheimer.com. It's called Six at Six. Okay. Uh, for everyone who wants to sign up, but no, I I think uh, I guess what we're what we're hopefully kicking around as we wrap up is that there's a business opportunity and a market opportunity here for people who can create content that does not make people angry at the world when they're <laughs> exactly. done reading it, but it it. it generally improves their life or yeah, I was gonna say, something to think about. Co- content that invests in yourself and it doesn't have to be investing in yourself at work. Like yes. I, I I just um because I was feeling that need also, I just started a, a book club uh yep. with with founders. Um but the whole like my whole thing was you're signing up for this if you don't want to read business books. We're like we can have, we can have discussion or we're gonna have a book club, but it's not gonna be business books. It's gonna yes. be about everything from like fantasy to historical fiction to poetry. That's right. No, no, that that that's true. Um I, I like that. I like that also. I think books shouldn't just be uh you know, about current events. Totally. Well, this is awesome, man. Uh I'm I'm so glad we got connected and uh this was a good way to get to know each other, I think. Yeah, man, I, I love it. I've never done a an intro conversation in the form of a podcast, but I, but I love it. Well, I I figured I don't know about you, but I I I've never had a like let's get to know each other phone call that either wasn't a complete waste of time or <laughs> wasn't so good that it should have just been recorded. Do you know what yeah. I mean? No, so, no, I think it's really smart. Uh, I figured we'd try it, and I think I think it went well. Well, uh, this was awesome, and uh, I'm going to check out all these sites. And uh, we'll, yeah, man, uh, we'll be we'll in touch. And let me let me know if I can be helpful in any way. You got it. Let me know when you're in Texas. I will talk to you soon. You know, the Stoics in real life met at what was called the Stoa, the Stoa Pokile, the Painted Porch in ancient Athens. Obviously, we can't all get together in one place. Uh, first off, because this community is like hundreds of thousands of people, and we couldn't fit in one space, but we have made uh, a special digital version of the Stoa. We're calling it Daily Stoic Life. It's an awesome community. You can talk about like today's episode. You've talked about the emails, ask questions. That's one of my favorite parts is interacting with all these people who are using Stoicism to be better in their actual real lives. You get more Daily Stoic meditations over the weekend, uh, just for the Daily Stoic Life members, quarterly Q&As with me, cloth-bound edition of our Best of Meditations, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, including discounts. And this is the best part, 
all our Daily Stoic courses and challenges totally for free, hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our New Year, New You Challenge. We'd love to have you join us. There's a two-week trial totally for free. Check it out at dailystoiclife.com. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most people think about when they hear the words Black history? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.